Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. The Qalam Podcast has become an important part of people's lives all around the world. There are millions of people benefiting from the podcast every single day. Thousands of hours of content, dozens of different series from all the different teachers and scholars here at Qalam. All of this is delivered to the community free of charge. We are excited and actively working to grow and increase our efforts to deliver more and more benefit to the community. We ask you to support our efforts and become part of the Qalam family. Please go to qalamfamily.com and sign up to contribute to this Sadaqa Jariya on a monthly basis. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from all of us Jazakumullahu khairan wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah wa kafa wa salamun ala ibadihi alladhina istafa. Khususan ala sayyidi rusuli wa khatimil anbiya wa ala alihi al-iskiya wa ashabihi al-atqiya. Amma ba'd. Some of the companions of Rasulullah were blessed with a short journey to the Prophet Here I refer to their distance. Abu Bakr Siddiq was a resident of Mecca, a fellow tribesman. He had easy access to Rasulullah The journey that he had to take on to show his loyalty and stand by Rasulullah is where you see his sacrifice. Likewise, when Nabi arrives in Medina Munawwara, so many Sahaba are residents of Medina Tayyibah. So they have that easy access to Rasulullah and with their exposure, the more they see and hear from the Prophet the more amazed they are, the more touched they are. But then there are those companions of the Prophet ﷺ who had to take on a journey of a lifetime just to be with Rasulullah For those of us who have access to ilm, the deen, to scholars, just by where we are, we should be thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that everything is so easily available to us. No journey at all, no hard work. The first person you bump into in terms of the deen, understands the deen, knows the deen, teaches the deen, is an imam in the community. These are blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you can never thank him enough for. Because for most people that isn't the case. Their interaction with the deen is one interaction after another, one door they knock on to another. And some of those experiences along the way are very difficult. And they could be nerve-wracking. They could be scarring as well. And if you don't walk that path carefully, then you could be lost along the way. And that's the reality of life. That for most of us, it's this big, wiggly, turny, twisty road that you go from one place to another place, from one place to another place. I hear stories from people quite frequently that some years ago, I was involved with a masjid or I went to a dars or a halaqa 
and the particular sheikh or sheikha that I was engaged with turned out to be a con or maybe someone who swindled me, someone who took advantage of the people, their congregations. These are very sad stories, but they're unfortunately true and real. If your intentions are not focused, and if you, have, if you don't have the strength needed to face those difficulties, you can easily fall face down. How you pull through these circumstances is by reminding yourself that your commitment is to Allah first and foremost, and that's the end of it. Knowing the difference between Islam and Muslims. Someone asked Hassan al-Basri once, what is Islam and who are Muslims? And this man is a student of senior companions like Ali radiallahu an and Anas bin Malik radiallahu an. And to that, Hassan al-Basri responded back by saying, Muslims are in the grave and Islam is in the books. It's very hard to find people who truly represent the religion, who live by revelation. It's not easy, it's hard to find people like this. Earlier today when I was speaking to the students at the seminary, I explained to them that there is a clear distinction between Islamic history and Muslim history. Islamic history we are loyal to. It ends at the Khulafa al-Rashidun. That's where it ends. Rasulullah life and the life of the Khulafa. After that starts Muslim history. And you have a mixed bowl there. You have the good, the bad, the joyful and prideful moments, and then you have the super disastrous and shameful moments as well. It's a mix of all of it put together. Be committed and loyal to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and never shy away from the challenges that are on that path. So for today's story, we turn to a companion who went through one epic journey to lay his eyes on Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Sayyidina Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anh, a Persian resident whose father was religious, his family was religious. His father loved him so much. In his own words, he says that it was as if every day my father's love for me only increased. Abdullah ibn Abbas narrates the incident from Salman al-Farisi the journey of his life. But my father was so worried and he was so protective that he would keep me at home, would discourage me from going outside. And then when I was of the appropriate age, I was given the task to work in the temple to kindle the fire so the fire they worshipped as majusis would never be extinguished. He continued that, continued doing that one day he had to tend to the family business. His father had some land that they would look over every day. His father was unable to go so he sent him in his place and when he went there on the way back, he passed by a church. There were some priests in there that were worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He was so intrigued that he engaged with them and he began to listen to them. He sat with them and this became something that he appreciated so much more than what he had done and he had no previous exposure to religion. He grew up with the religion that he was born in and hadn't seen the world outside of his home and the temple that he served. Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anh he went back home and told his father that, man, I bumped into these priests and what they were 
saying and what they were teaching and the way they worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, their message of Tawheed was so pure that I'm inclined to this religion. His father was overwhelmed and terrified and tried to dissuade him. And when he failed, he locked Salman al-Farsi in the home, chained him up. Salman al-Farsi sent a message to those priests and told them that if there are any caravans from Sham, from Syria that arrive to our land, let me know. I wish to join them to go to the motherland of Christianity and learn it from there. I want to go to Al-Aqsa. I want to go to Quds. I want to go to that land of Palestine. So they sent him a message some days later that there's a caravan here that will be here for a number of days and then it'll be heading out. Salman al-Farsi had a plan in place. He released himself from the chains and rushed off, joined the caravan, and arrives now in Sham. He asks the people there that who is the most knowledgeable of the religion that I can go to? I want the companionship of someone. I want a guide. So everyone pointed to the famous one. That, you know, there's a famous guy over there. This guy is really prominent. You should go to him. And not in all cases, but in many cases, the famous ones are the ones you need to avoid. He ends up with this guy. Salman al-Fasi says that it wasn't too long after I started sitting with him and benefiting from him that I realized this, guy, this man was disgusting. He was horrible. He would give lectures about charity and would tell people to live simple lives and when they would give him their charity, he would take their gold and silver and instead of distributing it to the poor, he was hoarding it for himself. Until a point came where there were six or seven massive qilal. Qilal refers to like a big clay pot. In our language, you call it a matka. He had these big clay pots full of gold that people had given him over the years that he should have distributed among the poor. He didn't distribute any of it. Salman radiallahu an sat it out, didn't say much. He was still new there. This man died. When he died, everyone gathered together for a grand funeral. He stood up in front of the people and said, Guys, stop it. This is not a good human being. This person actually is a very bad man. They said, How dare you accuse our scholar and leader? He said, Trust me. You know all that sadaqah that you guys have been giving all this time? I know exactly where it is. They said, Impossible. Let me show you. He takes him over, opens the account, and says, Look at this Chase account right here. And they see an ungodly amount of gold just sitting there. So in return, what they did was, rather than giving him an honorable burial, they crucified him and they, they basically crucified him and they disrespected his body. Now they were so angry that they wanted to replace this head priest of theirs with a respectful person that would actually be just with the congregation. So they began to look and look and look. Finally, they found someone and that person came to replace him. Salman an says that when I met this man, he was the exact opposite of the first guy. He was a good human being. He was righteous. He was simple. He was humble. He was a godly human being. I lived with him until his death approached. He was an old man. When he was passing away, I asked him, that after you, who can I gain companionship from and grow? So he said, go to so-and-so place. There is a man there that I'm telling you, he is a good person. 
Now bear in mind as we move along in this story that Salman al-Farsi saw the misuse of wealth in the religious class of people. This experience of his is very important. Okay, hold on to that thought. So he arrives at the second person's door. This person was amazing and awesome, really influenced by him, benefited so much from him. When this person was dying, he said, who do I go to now? He sent him to a third person. He went to that third person. Again, awesome human being, benefited tremendously from him. And then he said, now where do I go? He sent him to a fourth person. Each of these people were on their deathbed. He arrives at the fourth person, benefits from him. Finally, this fourth person on his deathbed says to him, that there is no one that I know on the face of this earth that I vouch for, like I was vouched for. But I will tell you that the signs have now appeared as we see in our scripture, the moments for the final prophet to arrive have come. So I will describe to you the land where you will see him next. A land full of palm trees lying between two volcanic mountains. Between the two volcanic mountains, he will be there. Salman al-Farsi had no idea where to go. But this teacher did tell him that it would be somewhere in the Arab lands. Now he's waiting in the markets for the next Arab caravan to arrive. When the, car when the caravan arrives, he says to them that, look, I have a few animals. I will trade them for you guys to guide me and provide safe passage to the Arabian lands, to the Hijaz. They agree. Let's do it. These people, they traveled with him out of Sham. They came down south. And when they entered into the Hijaz, they betrayed him. They tied him up in chains and sold him to a Jew. This Jewish man, he then took him and sold him to another Jewish man who resided in Medina Munawwara. This guy brings him to Medina, has him in slavery. Salman al-Farsi is picking dates from trees. And that's where he is. Not knowing where life is taking him probably reflecting over how he had this amazing dream of sitting with the greats of his time. But today, he's at a roadblock, at a dead end, picking dates. But in those moments, you can only imagine his du'as and his turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that, Ya Allah, this is all for you, open the path. He was trying to make way to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Little did he know that the Prophet of Allah was going to come to him. He hears through the grapevines that there is a person that claims to be a prophet in Mecca. He's intrigued, doesn't know much, spends his days as a slave working for his master in the fields. And then he hears that this prophet has arrived in Medina Munawwara. In Quba he was at the time, right outside Medina. At that moment, Salman Farsi says, when I heard that news, I was in the tree picking dates and I felt this jolt go through my body. My body began to shiver and shake that I thought I was going to fall off the tree right on my master. So I quickly descended from the tree. I went up to him and I said, what did you say? That that prophet has arrived in Medina? And he's looking at the date palm trees around him and the two volcanic mountains on each side. So his master slapped him across the face and said, get back to date picking. This is none of your business. He quietly went back to the top of the tree picking his dates. He had collected some dates of his own and he waited for the opportunity 
to go outside of Medina to Quba and meet Rasulullah He arrives in Quba. The last teacher that he was with had told him that in order for you to know that this prophet is the real deal, I will give you three signs. He will not eat from sadaqah. Remember, Salman al-Farsi had dealt with people that were abusing sadaqah, abusing charity. When you go to him, he won't do that. Rather, on the other hand, he will accept gifts, which is a sign of him being generous and kind and cordial. So if you go to him with sadaqah, he won't accept it for himself. He will give it to the poor. But if you go to him with a gift, he will accept it for himself out of respect for you. And then between his shoulder blades will be the seal of prophethood, which was a unique mark on the back of Rasulullah He arrives in Quba with these dates, and very carefully, strategically, he says, O Messenger of God, I bring these dates as sadaqah for you. He's watching carefully. How does this man respond? Rasulullah takes the dates and hands them over to the Sahaba. You guys can share these. In his heart, he must be thinking, yes. Whew. Got one down. He heads back, continues his work. Some days have passed. Rasulullah now moved on from Quba and has arrived in Medina Munawwara. He arrives a second time with some dates to Rasulullah and he says, O Messenger of Allah, these are, uh, I'm presenting these to you as a gift. The Prophet accepts them and has a date or two himself and then shares them with the others. He then arrives again to Medina Munawwara later on to check up on Rasulullah and this time he comes, the Prophet of Allah was in the graveyard of Baqi'ah, the famous graveyard of Medina Munawwara. And he's trying to figure out that third sign, if that mark of prophethood is on the back of the Prophet of Allah. So, in not so much of a discreet manner, he begins to peek over the shoulder of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam notices what he's doing, so he lowers his garment for him. Salman al-Fasir leans forward and hugs the Prophet of Allah. The Prophet pulls his garment back up and says, Buddy, what's your story? What is going on here? So he says, Oh, Messenger of Allah, this is my full story. This is where I've come from. And while Salman al-Faris is sharing this story with Ibn Abbas, remember he's sharing this story too? Abdullah ibn Abbas. So then he says that as he's sharing the story with Ibn Abbas Abbas. So just as I'm telling you this full story, O oh young Ibn Abbas, I said the whole story with the same detail to Rasulullah. Nabi was so amazed by the story that he then told me to share my epic journey with the other companions that were there. And everyone that heard it was shocked that, man, this guy climbed Everest 10 times around. You know what it means to climb Everest? Once you cross 8,000 feet, you enter into the 
Huh? The, low, the, the death zone. Staying there will naturally just kill you. You can't stay there anymore. Your body needs more oxygen. You know how people, when they climb Everest, it's a big deal for them. For Salman al-Fasil, this was a never-ending journey. He went from being the son of a respectable man, now sold into slavery, cutting away at dates, and just waiting, and at an absolute roadblock, having been abused and seeing the foul of religion and the beauty of religion, sitting with these amazing people. And his journey was epic, but who could he share the story with? He was sitting on it without telling anyone, and now he's sitting in front of the greatest of all mankind, Rasulullah and the Prophet hears his story, and he says, man, that's epic. You're a legend. I'll jump to another narration, then I'll come back to this one. One time Rasulullah recited the ayah, وَإِن تَتَوَلَّوْ يَسْتَبْدِلْ قَوْمًا غَيْرَكُمْ that if you turn away, then Allah will replace you with a new generation, with another generation. So the companion said, O Messenger of Allah, who would these people be? So the Prophet took his hand and he tapped Salman al-Farsi And he said, this man and his people, referring to the Persians, that this man and his people, and one there, under the tafsir of the ayah, وَآخَرِينَ مِنْهُمْ لَمَّا يَلْحَقُوا بِهِمْ وَآخَرِينَ مِنْهُمْ لَمَّا يَلْحَقُوا بِهِمْ Of Surah Jum'ah, uh, Imam Suyuti narrates that same narration. He says, the Prophet because in that ayah Allah is talking about a second group of people who are not from the Sahaba, who will come and match them in quality and characteristics. So then Imam Suyuti he says that at that point Rasulullah said that from this man's lineage will come people who will go far above and beyond and come back with understandings of the deen and will, will put their sweat and blood into the deen that even those who received it, meaning the Arabs, they will not have put that effort in. Referring to the children uh, and the people of Salman al-Farsi And then you fast forward in history and you find exactly that. The canonization of hadith happens all in Persia. Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, Imam Abu Dawood al-Sijistani, Imam Tirmidhi, Al-Bughi, Imam Nasa'i, all these people. And Imam Suyuti, after he narrated that riwayah, after that he said that in my opinion, Imam Abu Hanifa was also the murad of that statement of Rasulullah even though he is Shafi'u al-Madhab himself. So Salman al-Farsi finally shares his amazing, beautiful story. Now he has to head back to the farm because he was a slave. Life doesn't end. You found the Prophet of Allah, his dream came true, but he's got to go back to work. Like most of us, you listen to the khatira, listen to the halaqah, spiritually motivated. Next morning at 8 a.m., 7 a.m., when that alarm goes off, what do you need to do? Got to go back to work. Got to throw that coat on again, got to tie those shoes up again, and you're back to life. Salman al-Fasil went back to work. And he remained in slavery for the next four to five years. According to majority of the Ahlul Maghazi, Ahlul Sir, the historians, they write, he missed Badr and Uhud. He wasn't able to participate in either of those great battles. In the second year and third year after Hijrah, 
because he was still locked in slavery. And after missing Uhud, Rasulullah then called him and said to him, Katib Ya Salman, enter into a contract with your owner and ask him for a price that you will pay off so then you can be free. Mukataba. Enter into an, a contract. Thumma shagala Salman al-Riq hatta fatahuma Rasulullah Badr wa Uhud. فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ كَاتِبْ يَا سَلْمَانِ فَكَاتَبْتُ صَاحِبِي عَلَى ثَلَاثِمِئَةِ نَخْلَةِ وَبِأَرْبَعِينَ أُقِيَةِ I went into contract with my owner that I would dig out for him right? 300 palm trees. Dig out for him means that I would it, wasn't, it wouldn't just be palm trees that existed, meaning I would dig out the ground, prepare the land, make it all fertile, get the land prepared and ready, then find the tree, place it there, have it grow. I would give him 300 of them. That is a ridiculous amount of date palm trees. And for those of you who don't know, like try to grow a tree in your backyard or if your HOA requires in the front yard, one of those trees will wipe you out. He had to do 300 of them. And then 40 uqiyah, uqiyah was a weight, a unit of gold. There would be 40 uh, sort of measurement of gold that would be given. He came back to the Prophet wasallam and he said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, this is what the guy said. The guy said that I owe him 300 palm trees and like, like a whole cup full of gold, a whole jug full of gold. How am I going to give him that? I'm done. So the Prophet wasallam then turns to the companions and he says, A'inu akhakum. Fundraiser. Everyone chip in. We need Salman al-Farsi radiallahu out of slavery. The ummah needs to learn to recognize high potential. If you see people in your community that have a tremendous amount of potential and the only thing holding them back from excelling and serving the deen is their financial state, we need to get their, those people out of that burden so they can run in serving the deen. Because there are people who have that strength, that energy, that potential, and they can do much more than many of us would be able to do if we were to do it. You have to learn to see that potential, see it in certain people. If you see someone that this person could be a phenomenal physician if their finances were taken care of, build the courage to take them through that path. Take on their burden, take on their responsibility. Because if you take it on, watch of the khair that will then follow. I was uh, once, is Musa here? Musa's not here, is he? His grandfather has one of the most epic stories in the world, by the way. Uh, he's Kashmiri origin, and um, I was once sitting with him in his living room in Virginia. He's a physician. And he was telling me that how when he was young, there were a group of people who, um, Muslims, who for one reason or another, when they were young, hadn't performed their circumcision. And neither could they afford it. So he was a physician who had just graduated and had a little bit of training. So he said, you know what, for the sake of Allah, let me see if I can perform a procedure or two to help these people. So in that, in that area, he 
performed one procedure, second procedure, third one, and then the number of people started coming that they heard that there was a person that was helping. So everyone started piling in that we need help, we need help with this, we need help with that. He started providing some help, and then life happened and he had to leave. So many years later, when he passed by, he was visiting again, maybe like 40, 50 years later, he was back in Kashmir again with his wife, and he said, to his family, let me take you back to the first place I ever practiced in my life. He's a very old man now, Dr. Alvi. So he said, let me take you back to the place where I first practiced in my life. And when he went there, that small little hut that he had called Shifa was no longer there. There was this big hospital there. He said, what's this? He went inside and it was called Shifa. He said, what's this place? They said, well, many years ago, there was a man that came to this place and he set the first clinic here. So after he left, the people of the community upheld it, and today it's this massive hospital with hundreds of beds. This place is dedicated to the unknown man. And he began to cry. That little did I know that one small effort of mine would bear such a fruit that hundreds and thousands of lives would be saved because of one move of this, one sincere moment. And that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks for, those sincere moments. That you just roll the dice and say, no, I trust Allah. Allah will take care of it. Allah will take care of it. And then he, he said to them that I'm the guy who started this. And he had pictures of it all, documentation of it all from his old life. And they then built a memorial for him outside. That this is the man that came and unknowingly set a seed in the ground that today this is the fruit of that seed. You have to learn to look for talent and potential. And, 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 the, and, the, and the skill within people, look for the potential in human beings. That where are people? Learn to find the brightness in human beings before the light even turns on in their own mind. Before they even realize what they can accomplish. Learn to look for that talent and invest in that talent. So the Prophet says to the Sahaba, A'inu akhakum. Let's go. Let's help out Salman al-Farsi. A man like this should not be in slavery. He's traveled the world. He's been traveling for decades for this moment. Let's get him out. So the Sahaba, they gathered together and they started bringing the trees together. One person brings 30, another person brings 20, another person brings 15, and slowly, slowly, all the trees are prepared. Now it's time to plant them. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, اِذْهَبْ يَا سَمَّانْ فَقَفِّرْ لَهَا فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ أَكُونَ أَنَا أَضَعُهَا بِيَدِي That you have, we have the trees ready, now what I need you to do is dig out the 300 holes. Go do that yourself. Take some people with you, dig out the ground, get the ground ready. When it's time to place these trees into the ground, call me, I will place them with my own hands. فَقَفَّرْتُ لَهَا وَعَانَنِي أَصْحَابِي We went and we dug out the holes. And when it was time, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came. نُقَرِّبُ لَهُ الْوَدِي وَيَضَعُهُ Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam بِيَدِهِ Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam placed the trees one by one in the earth himself. Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anhu says, The first time in my life I saw not one tree died. You know when you transplant trees, when you move them from one location to another? The probability of this not working out is decently high. It could work out and it may not. He said, out of 300, how many of them survived? All 300. مَا مَاتَ مِنْهَا وَدِيَّةً وَاحِدَةً 
So that part of my contract was waived from me. Now I had another problem. I had a whole jug of gold that still need to be given to this guy. Some time passed by. One day, فَأُتِيَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ بِمِثْلِ بَيْضَةِ الدَّجَاجَةِ مِنْ ذَهَبٍ مِنْ بَعْضِ الْمُعَادِمِ Some time had passed by and one day a person came to the Prophet ﷺ with a chunk of gold that was recovered from a mine. A mining expedition, someone was digging, he came across it, some gold, so he gave a part of that gold to Rasulullah ﷺ. Nabi ﷺ, he asked, Salman, what happened to your contract? He said, I'm Messenger of Allah, I'm waiting for that gold. The Prophet ﷺ says, well, here you go. Go and give it. He says, I waited. And minha. I took it and weighed it, and it was exactly 40 uqiya of gold. I went and I gave it. فَشَهِدْتُ مَعَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم خندق ثم لم يفتني معه مشهد رواه أحمد That I went, I gave that gold, I joined Rasulullah صلى الله عليه وسلم in the battle of the trenches, and after that day, I never missed a moment with Rasulullah Everything was with the Prophet Every moment, all day and night, as much as time as he could have with the Prophet of Allah, he was with the Prophet He was so dear and beloved to the Prophet of Allah that Anas bin Malik says that Rasulullah said, There are four people who will outrun and be ahead of everyone else. Four people will be the forerunners. Four people stand out. From the Arabs, Allah has given me that maqam and that place. And out of these four people, the Prophet ﷺ said that Salman al-Farisi is the forerunner of the people of Persia. When the battle of the trenches took place, this was his first time with Rasulullah ﷺ. The Muslims were in a very tough place. 10,000 soldiers are marching towards Medina Munawwara. The Prophet ﷺ realizes the Muslims are no match for them. So he doesn't know what to do. Salman al-Farsi he says, O Messenger of Allah, we have a tactic that we used to use in Persia that when the enemy outnumbers us by a large gap, we barricade ourselves behind a trench and we ride the war out. Let's do that. The Prophet ﷺ loved it. In one narration, as the Prophet ﷺ was dividing the Muhajirun in Ansar, saying that you guys are over there, you guys are over there, you guys are going to dig this part out, you, go, you folks will head over there and dig this part of the trench. Some of the Muhajirun said that Salman is from us. And some of the Ansar said, Salman is from us. And to that Rasulullah ﷺ said, Salman is actually from us, the family of Rasulullah This is a common riwayah that you'll find in the books of Sirah. However, as far as the Sanad goes, it is very weak as a chain. The Sanad of this is da'if jiddan. It is a very weak chain. But the meaning of it is quite sound in the sense that he was that dear and that special to Rasulullah I mean, the Battle of the Trenches is its whole story and it's its whole fascinating reflection. Uh, the truth is that what we face right now 
what we see right now happening in Gaza, when I try to look for moments that reflect that, reflect that reality at the time of Rasulullah and what we see right now, the closest that I see is the battle of the trenches. This one right here. Because the Muslims were barricaded in. They had nowhere to go. They had 10,000 soldiers surrounding them. On one side there was a mountain. On the second side, 10,000 soldiers with a trench separating them and the Muslims. And then on the third side were Banu Quraida. And this tribe of Banu Quraida betrayed the Muslims. They said to the Quraysh that we will allow you to pass by and go and butcher the Muslims one by one. When Rasulullah heard that Banu Qurayza betrayed them, all the Muslims now behind that trench were about to get butchered. The Prophet he lied on the ground and then you know, he was so stressed and so worried because there was no way out. They were going to die. They couldn't go anywhere. And there was a safe passage. They were going to come through and one by one, knock them off. Nabi when he heard this, and the news spread among the Sahaba that they were all going to die. Everyone was extremely sad, just depressed. This is over. We're all done. In that moment, Nabi Sallallahu he turned to the companions and he gave them hope. Capturing the scene of how depressed and sad they were, Allah says, إِذْ جَاءُكُمْ مِنْ فَوْقِكُمْ وَمِنْ أَسْفَلَ مِنْكُمْ They came from the top and the bottom. Your eyes couldn't see straight. That's how shocked you were. Your hearts had reached the throat. People couldn't breathe anymore. Like what some of us feel right now, that heaviness in your chest. What's going to happen next? People began to lose confidence in their Creator. It was at that point that believers were tested. They were severely shook. And then in that moment, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, everyone's in tears and they're sad that this is the end of it. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam stands up and he gives them hope. That mark my words, very soon we will do tawaf of the Kaaba together. And Allah will give me the keys of the Kaaba. And you will conquer Rome and Persia. And their treasures will be spent on you. And it's that optimism that Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had while everyone else was heartbroken that in Surah Al-Ahzab, in the surah that talks about the battle of the trenches, Allah says, in that same context, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولِ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا That indeed in the Prophet of Allah is the complete example. This ayah is talking about the Prophet's response to the Muslim morale being cracked. Everyone gave up, he didn't. So then the Sahaba followed his footsteps. The Prophet was optimistic, so when they faced their enemy, they said, This is what Allah and His Messenger promised, and they spoke the truth. Victory will be here for us. They only increased in submission and faith. Looking at the enemy, looking at death. Their iman went nowhere. From believers are those that fulfilled their commitment to God. That when things got tough, they didn't turn away. 
Why did Allah test him? So he may reward the truthful, the truthful for the truthfulness. So he may punish the hypocrites, insha'a, if he wills, oh yatuba alayhim, if he or, or if he wills to forgive them. As for the disbelievers, what they wanted from the Muslims, nothing was given to them. And bear in mind, in Khandaq, there were Sahaba that were martyred. But that was an honor for them. Last night I was sitting with some um, of my neighbors. And one of them said that, Sheikh, this doesn't feel right. What's happening in Gaza right now? And we can't do anything? What, are we just supposed to make dua? Are we just supposed to walk in meaningless protests? So, I said to him, one of the ultimate realizations in life, and one of the higher spiritual stations a person reaches, is to understand that sometimes we do things not for the sake of Allah, but for ourselves. It's a knee-jerk reaction for us to want to do something after we feel something. That's natural for the human being. You feel something and you want to follow it up with a action. You feel hunger, what do you want to do? Eat. You feel thirsty, what do you want to do? You want to drink. Right? You feel angry, what do you want to do? I'm waiting for you guys to tell me what you want to do. Asad wants to smash a hamburger. Right? Someone else wants to punch a hole through the wall. Like, what do you want to do? Like, after a feeling, after an emotion, it's common for someone feels sad, someone feels angry, someone feels frustrated. You want to follow those up, those up with actions. Now, if you just want to do something because you feel like that's what you need to do right now, then that's not a good thing. Because bodies, if you want to get on a flight right now and go to Gaza or Palestine, they don't need bodies there right now. This is a full political situation, you have to understand. And it's not just politics. If Barbados decided to support Gaza right now, what would that do? It's a regional issue. There are a select number of people that can actually impact the course of what happens next. Other people are not a part of this conversation. It sucks, but it's true. We can talk about long-term and short-term strategy of how to handle this, and that's another conversation. But for this one, understanding that in this moment, the only thing you can do is make dua and do whatever you can in your community by creating awareness and having conversations. You have to take contentment in that. You doing something to simply satisfy your own whims and desire may set the whole cause back. You jump on a flight and do something dumb and go out there and do something crazy, you set the whole cause of Muslims backwards. You're feeding into the narrative. These guys are doing their hardest to paint all Muslims in Palestine right now as terrorists. Therefore, they use language like 9-11, the 9-11 of Israel. They're using language like the ISIS of Israel, right? They're using all this terrorist language, you know? So to make it seem like Muslims there are terrorists, you do stuff like that, you're feeding that narrative. What you need to do right now in terms of action is nothing. You can go and raise your concern where appropriate and make dua and turn to Allah and do dhikr and turn to Quran. And there are many examples like this in the life of Rasulullah where Nabi just confided in Allah and made dua. And when it's time for you to stand up, 
If there is an opportunity for you to go and help our brothers and sisters across the world, if you can jump in a plane and go, then go. But otherwise, don't make an action about you while bringing harm to other people. The story of Khandaq is quite fascinating. And throughout this entire journey, by the side of Rasulullah wasallam, is Sayyidina Salman al-Farsi radiallahu ta'ala an. I'll share a few stories from his life and then we'll um, wrap up. There is a narration that Ash'ath bin Qais and Jarir ibn Abdullah both came to visit Salman al-Farsi radiallahu an. They granted their greetings and they, they conveyed their greetings. Assalamu alaikum. And they asked him, Anta sahibu Rasulullah, are you the companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? So Salman al-Farsi radiallahu an said, La adri, I don't know. Fartaba, they were pending. What do you mean you don't know? They were confused. So then Salman al-Farsi radiallahu an responded by saying, Innama sahibuhu man dakhala ma'ahu al-jannah. The true companion of the Prophet is the one who finds himself in paradise with the Prophet. I had some time with him in the dunya, but I don't know if I'm really worthy of being his companion. So then they said, we just came from Damascus where Abu Darda radiallahu an lived. Now Abu Darda radiallahu an and Salman al-Farsi radiallahu an were made brothers in Medina. Muakhat, how Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam paired companions together for that support. Abu Darda radiallahu an was paired with Salman al-Farsi. Salman al-Farsi radiallahu an was not an immigrant, but he was a slave that was then later set free and to help him get on his feet as well, the Prophet of Allah paired him with Abu Darda radiallahu an. And there are a series of very fascinating, truly fascinating interactions between these two. When you open up the books of hadith, you find them. For example, Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi narrates in his um, Adab al-Mufrad Akha Rasulullah bayna Salman wa Abu Darda Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam paired Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anhu Abu Darda radiallahu anhu One day Salman al-Farsi came to visit Abu Darda and in return instead of meeting Abu Darda he saw Abu Darda's wife Fara'a Umm Darda he saw Umm Darda radiallahu anhu there and she looked tired and exhausted and sad Faqar laha ma sha'nuki what's going on he asked her so then she says, Inna akhaka abaddardai, laysat lahu hajatun fid dunya. You know that brother of yours, Abu Darda, that friend of yours? He has no worldly desire. He just worships and prays and fasts all day. You can imagine as a wife, she's like, there's a disconnect here. He's always doing mashallah stuff, and I'm just trying to have a few moments with him. And he goes back to his mashallah stuff. So Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anh says, I'll take care of this for you. فَلَمَّا جَاءَ أَبُوْ دَرْدَاءَ قَرُوبَ تَعَامًا So Abu Darda radiallahu anh came home. Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anh was there. He presented some food to him. So Abu Darda radiallahu anh said, إِنِّي صَائِمٌ I'm fasting, I can't eat. Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anh says, Wallahi, I won't eat until you eat. You're breaking your fast. So Abu Darda radiallahu anh then broke his fast. 
out of respect for Salman al-Farisi radiallahu anhu. Obviously, it wasn't, oblig it wasn't an obligatory fast, otherwise Salman would be fasting too. فَلَمَّا كَانَ ذَهَبَ أَبُوْ So, when night came in, Abu Darda radiallahu anhu got up to pray. Salman al-Farisi radiallahu anhu grabbed his hand and pulled him back down. Lie down and go to sleep. You're not praying now. He's trying to go pray Salman al-Farsi, saying, nope, you need to go back to sleep. We need to create some balance here. فَلَمَّا كَانَ آخِرُ الْلَيْلِ قَالَ لَهُ سَلْمَانَ قُمِ الْآنَ When it was in the last part of the night, close to Fajr, Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anhu then said to him, now stand up and go pray your tahajjud salah. فَقَامَا فَصَلَّيَا And then Salman radiallahu anhu said, إِنَّ لِنَفْسِكَ عَلَيْكَ حَقًّا that you're, you have a duty that you owe to yourself. Take it easy. Balance things out. <laughs> Your Lord has a right on you. Fulfill that right as well. That, that right as well. That fulfill the right to everything. Your wife has a right. Your family has a right. Your people have a right. Take care of everyone. Take care of yourself. The next morning, Abu Darda radiallahu an, he said, man, I got to get this issue cleared up. I did all of this because I respect you, but I want it clear. فَأَتَيَ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ The next day, both of them came to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. فَذَكَرَ ذَلِكَ لَهُ And they mentioned to the Prophet of Allah the whole interaction. فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمْ صَدَقَ سَلْمَان That Salman spoke the truth. You need to have balance in everything that you do. So these two guys, they came to him and they asked him, are you the companion of the Prophet of Allah? He said, I don't know. They said, what do you mean you don't know? He said that, well, you know, the, the true companion of the Prophet of Allah is the one that will be with him in paradise. So at that point they said to him, Jitna min indi abid darda. Now the Prophet has passed away. Salman has left uh, and he is in Persia. And Abu Darda radiallahu has moved on. And he is now in Damascus. These two young friends are now in two different parts of the world. So Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anhu said, Aina hadiyatuhu? Where's his gift? Qala, ma ma'ana hadiyya? We don't have any gift. He didn't give it. He said, Ittaqiyya Allah wa addiyya al-amanah. Be fearful of Allah and fulfill the trust. Ma atani ahadun min indihi illa bihadiyyatin. No one has ever visited me from Abu Darda radiallahu anhu but without a gift. Where's my gift? They said, he didn't give anything. Like, wallahi, this is the real deal. He didn't give anything. So, قال سلمان, ما أريد إلا الهدية. I will not speak to you or engage with you until I have my gift. So then they said, قال wallahi, ما بعث معنا بشيء إلا أنه قال. He did not give us anything. The only thing that happened is that when we went to him, he said, إِنَّ فِيكُمْ رَجُلًا كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ إِذَا خَلَى بِهِ لَمْ يَبْغِ غَيْرَهُ That you are going to meet a person. His, his relationship with the Prophet of Allah was such that he was with the Prophet of Allah. Nabi Wasallam didn't even look at anyone else. You're going to meet such a person. لَمْ يَبْغِ غَيْرَهُ فَإِذَا أَتَيْتُمَاهُ فَأَقْرِيَاهُ مِنِّي السلام. So when you go to him, give him my salam. قَالَ فَأَيُّ هَدِيَّةٍ كُنْتُ أُرِيدُ مِنْكُمَا غَيْرَ هَذِهِ he said, what else do you think I was asking for in terms of the gift? I just wanted Abu Darda salam. I was waiting for you to 
bring peace to my heart and tell me that my buddy Abu Darda remembers me minha. The Prophet once said Paradise desires three people Everyone wants paradise but paradise desires three people Ali wa Ammar wa Salman And one of those three people is Salman al-Farsi radiallahu ta'ala Salman radiallahu an, even after being appointed as a governor and he had this respectable stipend that was enough to take care of him and his family, he would give all of that, all 5,000, 4,000 dirham dananid he would get, he would give all of it in the path of Allah and then he would ya'mal biyadihi, he would go and work in the markets to earn money. And then when he, فَإِذَا أَصَابَ شَيْءٍ اِشْتَرَى بِهِ لَحْمًا وَسَمَكًا With the money that he would earn, he would then go and buy some, some meat and then he would invite people who were sick, the poor, the needy, and he would eat with them. One time Abu Darda wrote a letter to Salman al-Farsi. Remember I told you there's so many fascinating interactions? Abu Darda sakana bisham wa sakana Salman al-Kufa wa kataba Abu Darda ilayhi salamun alayk amma ba'd. فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ رَزَقَنِي رَزَقَنِي بَعْدَكَ مَالًا وَوَلَدٍ وَنَزَرْتُ الْأَرْضَ الْمُقَدَّسَةِ He said, Allah Abu Darda radiallahu anhu wrote a letter that after I departed you, I moved to this blessed Mubarak land of Sham and Allah gave me wealth and family. Um, so Salman al-Farsi radiallahu anhu responds to him, اِعْلَمْ أَنَّ الْخَيْرَ لَيْسَ بِكَثْرَةِ الْمَالِ وَالْوَلَدِ He says to his brother, that don't think a lot of wealth and a large family is a sign of good. Good is that your forbearance increases, that you don't become stubborn and mean and harsh with people. And that your knowledge benefits you. That's a sign that God likes you. That do good deeds as if you can... Uh, um, so there's one line before that. When you do good deeds, do them sincerely for the sake of Allah and consider yourself among the dead. What that means is when you die, nobody cares about you. So while you're alive, stop acting like people care about you. Focus on your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One time, Salman al-Farsi had a dispute with another sahabi. Another senior Sahabi. So that person was so angry at Salman radiallahu anhu, you know, things got heated. So, in a very insulting manner, he said to Salman, Intasibya Salman, tell me what your lineage is. Salman radiallahu anhu was not Arabian, and a non Arab lineage was frowned upon, and he knew exactly what was happening here, and this person was trying to insult him. Qala, كان بين سعد بن أبي وقاص والسلمان الفارسي شيء قال أسب يا سلمان قال ما أعرف لي أبا في الإسلام ولكني سلمان ابن الإسلام He said I don't have a father that I can reference that would bring any prestige However I will say that I am Salman the son of Islam أنا سلمان ابن الإسلام I am Salman the son of Islam Umar رضي الله عنه he heard this he heard of this interaction. 
he then met the other companion and said to him, Intasib, tell me your lineage. Seems like you were flexing the other day and asking other people, calling other people out. Tell me. Qala anshuduka billahi ya amir al-mu'mineen. The sahabi, he said, let it go. So Umar radiallahu an, fa'aba an yada'u hatta intasaba. He said, no. Tell me. Tell me. Thumma qala, and then Umar radiallahu an said, لَقَدْ عَلِمَتْ قُرَيْشْ أَنَّ الْخَطَّابَ كَانَ أَعَزَّهُمْ فِي الْجَاهِلِيَّةِ وَأَنَا عُمَرُ بْنُ الْإِسْلَامِ That everyone knows that my father Khattab was a respectable man from the Quraysh. But even I am Umar, the son of Islam. أَخُو سَلْمَان إِبْنَ الْإِسْلَامِ أَمَا وَاللَّهِ لَوْ لَا شَيْءٌ لَعَقَبْتُكَ He said that, had it not been for a particular matter, I would have punished you. Then I'm going to let this one go. We are all brothers in Islam. Forget all of this lineage and tribe and race and all these things. Forget all this. We are one body, one family. Salman al-Farsi, when he was on his deathbed, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and Ibn Mas'ud came to visit him. Crying. So they said, why are you crying? Does it not please you? Does it not make you happy? That you were blessed with companionship of Rasulullah Does it not make you happy that you stood by the side of Rasulullah in almost all the battles? You were with him. The Prophet loved you. Why are you crying? The Prophet made us take a promise while he was alive and we didn't fulfill that promise. This is now the khilaf of Uthman and he's on his deathbed. Nabi made us promise that we would not live luxurious lives. That we would live simple lives like that of travelers. And we didn't fulfill this promise of Rasulullah Qala Thabit, the narrator says, Balaghani annahu ma taraka illa bid'atan wa ashirina dirhaman. When he said that we lived luxurious lives, when he was crying over that, we then found out he only had 20 dirhams left. It wasn't like he was sitting on hundreds of thousands or millions. But he still cried. He was worried that how will I face Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? When his death approached, he called his wife, Buqayra, and said to her, Open all the doors to the house. Iftahi hadhihi al-abwab. Fa'inna li al-yawma zuwaran wala adri min ayya hadhihi al-abwab yadkhuluna alayya. For I will have guests visiting me today and I don't know which door they will come through but I'm ready for all of it. Then he called for some musk and said to his wife, mix it with some water and sprinkle it around my bed. I want the malaika to have the scent, to have a beautiful scent. So she says that I was just finishing sprinkling and فَإِذَا هُوَ قَدْ أُخِذَ رُوحُهُ His soul had already left his body. 
فَكَأَنَّهُ نَائِمٌ عَلَىٰ فِرَاشِهِ Like he was very calmly sleeping on his bed. The legend, Salman al-Farsi radiallahu an, departed from this dunya. How long did Salman al-Farsi radiallahu an live? Abbas ibn Yazid al-Bahrani says that he lived 350 years. It's a very long life. Imam Dahbi rahmatullahi alayhi, the famous historian and scholar, he says, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm buying into the 350 year life, right? I mean, miracles are miracles, things could happen. But then he begins to present counter arguments that there is this narration, there is that narration. For example, there's one, one, one narration of when Sa'd ibn Abi Waqas came to visit him and he was crying. You guys remember that Niraya when Salman al-Fasil was crying and he said to him, doesn't it make you happy that the Prophet was happy with you? So at that point, Salman al-Farsi, I mean, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas he used a very interesting phrase. He said, Qala Sa'dun, فَمَا يُبْكِيكَ بَعْدَ الثَّمَانِينَ So why are you crying after you've lived 80 years in this world? Like you lived a good life. You lived a good life. You did some good things. You made great contributions. Now the riwayah, the narration that many years of age is a weaker one, but he says, Dhabi says that it, it gives us an indication that he may have been close to 100 around 80-ish, and then the question is, but then how did he meet all those people? How did he go through all these things and go on to live in Sham and then pass away in the Khilafah of uh, Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu an? So to that he says, وَمَجْمُوعُ أَمْرِهِ وَأَحْوَالِهِ وَغَزْوِهِ وَهِمَّتِهِ وَتَصَرُّفِهِ وَسَفِهِ لِلْجَرِيدِ وَأَشْيَاءِ مِمَّا تَقَدَّمَ يُنْبِئُ بِأَنَّهُ لَيْسَ بِمُعَمَّرْ وَلَا هَرَمٍ فَقَدْ فَارَقَ وَطْنَهُ وَهُوَ حَدِثٍ He said the fact is that he was able to do all of that shows that he wasn't 100 years old. If you say he was 350 years old, how is he digging in the ground, you know, at the age of 300, 300 date palm trees? You guys understand this? How is he participating in all these battles if he's 300 years old? That, isn't, that in itself proves his history, the life that he lived, that he was... A, not like he's 20, 30, but he was still in a decent age. He was at an age where people were strong and they were able to do things. He said it's most likely probable about the time Salman al-Faris arrived in Hijaz, he was around 40 years of age. He was around 40 years of age. That's most likely what it was. And then from there, the rest of the, um, the timeline perfectly and, uh, adds up. So this is a story of Salman al-Fasir radiallahu anh. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to learn and benefit and allow us to follow the footsteps of Salman al-Fasir radiallahu anh. A story full of so much sacrifice, commitment to Allah, simplicity, love for others, a story of fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, yet hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He lived a noble life and he passed away a noble death. Elevate his maqam and grant him the true companionship, companionship with the Prophet of Allah in Jannah. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Okay, two quick announcements for those of you that are here from the brothers, uh, from the community specifically. Not this Friday, but next Friday we're doing Charity Week at our masjid, inshallah. So we're looking to raise some funds.
that will be then donated as a part of Charity Week for a good cause. We'd like for some brothers and sisters in our community to set up some